Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 37, verses 18 to 30. Here now, the reading of God's word. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. He said this, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, now as we've heard your word being publicly read, We pray now that you would minister to us and that you would speak by the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We ask, O God, that these words would not be my own, but words that are empowered by your Spirit to dig deep into our heart and settle into our minds so that it would transform into actions that would be a blessing to the world around us. Father, you know how... We all struggle. You know the things that cause us to be so discouraged. And we pray that whatever those things may be, we can be assured that you would care for these matters and take care of them on your own time, therefore allowing us to be present to hear today's word. And so, God, help us now to hear everything that you want us to do. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, Bible pop quiz. Do you guys know? The very first question that was ever asked of God that's recorded in the Bible. Again, do you know the very first question that was ever asked of God that's recorded for us in the Bible? As I ask you that question, no doubt I'm probably triggering a lot of memories of the various prayers or questions that you've asked of God throughout your life, ranging from the silly to the serious to the irrelevant to the important. For example, you may have asked God questions that you've wondered about since your childhood. God, why is the sky blue and not neon purple? Or you may have asked some very deep probing existential questions like, God, what is the purpose and meaning of life? Or maybe you've asked God some very heartfelt, heart-wrenching questions in the midst of terror and trouble. God, why did my mom have to die so young? All throughout our lives, we ask God in our Christian walk various ranges and types of questions. But given that we are wondering what the first question ever asked of God was, according to the Bible, we ask what kind of question would be fitting and appropriate in that kind of unique, unrepeatable moment. I'd imagine most of us would say, well, surely it would have to be a very serious question, very important, you know, something very respectful. After all, this is the very first question man would ever ask of God. And so again, I ask you, what is the first question that's ever asked of God recorded in the Bible? Give up. Genesis chapter 4, verse 9. 
Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? In case you have forgotten, that is the question that was asked by a son of Adam named Cain right after he is confronted by the Lord for murdering his own brother Abel. Now, what this tells us is that even from the very beginning of human history, the family was in dire, desperate trouble. And this may come as a shock for those of you here investigating Christianity because you have bought into the stereotype that we Christians have families figured out, that we are a bunch of happy, harmonious folks, marriages are all intact, children respect mom and dad, you know, grandparents keep their boundaries. We just think we have it all figured out, which means any family that is in the church that is dysfunctional, that has issues, that has problems, is not only an embarrassment, but something that is never the norm and never something that God would ever tolerate. But I'm here to tell you right now, that is rubbish. Because one of the recurring motifs that we read in the stories of Scripture is that God uses individuals who come from some of the most broken, messed up, dysfunctional families this world has ever known. And one particular family that exemplifies this very idea is the one that we're looking at for the next few weeks, the family of Joseph. We're continuing our sermon series entitled The Gospel and the Family Life of Joseph. And the whole point of this series is to look at how the message of the gospel is able to transform a family that starts off broken and beaten down and turns it into a benefiting and blessed force to the world. And today we're going to take a look at the relationship that the first question ever asked of God assumes, the relationship amongst brothers, specifically the oldest brother to the younger brother. And in our passage, that would be Reuben to the rest of his siblings. And so with that stage set, three things I'd like to share with you with regard to Reuben and how his situation applies to all of us. Number one, we're going to talk about Reuben's experience as the oldest brother. Then we're going to talk about Reuben's failure as the oldest brother. And then we're going to finish it with Reuben's cry for the best oldest brother. Reuben's experience as the oldest brother, his failure as the oldest brother, and his cry for a better or the best oldest brother of all. Let's begin with the first point. Reuben's experience as the oldest brother. Read again our passage with me, starting in verse 18. It says, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Okay, pause it right there. Your attention, please. Our passage is one of many chapters that chronicles the family life of Joseph. Joseph. And in our part of the story right now, Joseph is the youngest of 11 sons, meaning he has a lot of older brothers, Reuben being the oldest of all. Okay, And as I just read to you, it's clear that this family is not happy, it's not harmonious. No, 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 not in any way. Why? Well, because one of the main, if not primary reasons why there's such hatred and hostility towards Joseph is because of the fact that their father, Jacob, favored Joseph more than any of his other siblings. And this is evident by the fact that Joseph is given a beautiful, colorful robe that was a status symbol of the unique privileges and benefits that only Joseph got to enjoy. And because with that family issue, we see a bunch of brothers who are so filled with hatred and hostility to the point where they would say such shocking words in verse 20. Come now, let us kill him, Joseph, and throw him into one of the pits. It's so astounding to believe that your own family would despise you and loathe you so much like these brothers did. And yet they did. They wanted to treat Joseph the way Cain actually treated his own brother Abel. They wanted to murder him in cold blood. 
Now, I know for many of us, when we read stories like this in the Bible, it's so easy for us to naturally think that we are nothing like this family or these people, right? We can't relate to it. We would say something to the effect of never in a million years would my family do, let alone dream of the kinds of things that this family did and desired to do to one another. And you know what? Maybe that is so. Praise God. Thank God that your families are safe and stable, filled with such love and acceptance. But hear me when I say this. Just because that may be the norm of your family life doesn't mean that is the norm of a lot of people's families' life because it turns out it's not. In his book, Intimate Families and Violence, Dr. Richard Gellis, who is a professor of social work at the University of Pennsylvania, says these startling words, quote, people are more likely to be killed, physically assaulted, hit, or beaten up in their own homes by other family members than anywhere else or by anyone else in our society, end quote. You know, so often we tend to get so scared and so suspicious of that random stranger we walk by in the city or the person we sit next to on the train thinking that these kinds of folks are the greatest potential dangers to us. But it turns out, statistically speaking, that the people who could be the potential source of great danger to you are those who live in your home, share your DNA, or even your last name. Now, I know, again, many of you are going to hear this and you're like, well, pastor, that's just not me and my family. This is not the condition of my present family life. And wonderful, thank God for that. But hear me out. It doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. You have no idea what the future is going to hold for you and your loved ones, what circumstances, what situations, what crisis, what tense moments that might awaken or agitate the monster inside of you or in them that is called sin. Consider this quote from Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid. He says this, We are easily deceived into thinking that we could Never commit such and such a sin, especially if the Lord has surrounded us with many external restraints. If we come from a good family and church background where we have been strongly encouraged by our circumstances to behave properly, we can easily believe that we are much better than people whose lives are marred by evident outward sin. Yet the reality is that if a particular sin is there in our thought lives, whether anger, lust, greed, malice, or whatever, all it would take are the right circumstances for that sin to bear its bitter fruit. For myself, I know that my relative purity as a teenager had very little to do with my sanctification and far more to do with God's gracious gift to me of social awkwardness and unattractiveness, end quote. (laughs) I never heard a guy thank God for being ugly as a teenager, right? There it is. Just because anger, aggression, abuse, and abandonment has never manifested in your family doesn't mean these things are not currently hibernating in your heart or in the heart of your loved ones, just waiting for the right season to arrive that would awaken this monster with inside of you and wreak havoc on your family. And because that is so, do you realize what that means? It means every single one of us has the capability of experiencing the family dysfunctions of Reuben. Reuben? Yeah, remember him? Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob, the oldest brother of Joseph. Right? It's interesting. Uh, the chapters that we're going to be looking at in this series, the spotlight tends to be almost exclusively on Joseph himself. But for whatever reason, our passage wants to take a pause from Joseph and put the spotlight on Reuben. And the question is, why? Why Reuben? Well, consider what it says starting in verse 21. It reads, but when Reuben heard it, <clears throat> he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. He said this so that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. You know, 
As the oldest child, Reuben would have been most exposed and therefore the least bothered by all the dysfunctions and problems of his family. And yet he seems to be the only sibling who does not want to carry out what the rest of his brothers want to carry out. He does not want to kill Joseph. In fact, he tries to save Joseph. How? By coming up with a very deceptive, scheming plan to save his brother. Right? And many Bible scholars are somewhat divided as to why he's doing this. Right? After all, Reuben has problems of his own. Why all of a sudden is he being noble? Why is he all of a sudden trying to do this saving act? Well, some Bible scholars think that Reuben is doing this because he's trying to get into the good graces of his dad. After all, if he can save the favorite child of his father, maybe some of that favoritism will rub off on him. Other scholars think that Reuben is simply doing the task of what the oldest brother is supposed to do. Apparently, in that culture, the one who is most responsible for the well-being of the youngest son is the oldest brother. And so scholars say, you see, he's just doing what his culture teaches him to do. But I believe there's something else going on. I think there's another motivation, more sinister, more dark, that's compelling him to try and save Joseph, right? And what is that? Well, you have to look back at an earlier incident that Reuben was involved in, in Genesis 35. Because if you go there, we come to find that he behaves in a way that, according to our modern sensibilities, would be quite disturbing and disgusting. Do, what, do you know what Reuben did? He slept with one of his father's wives. Yeah, in case you've forgotten, his father, Jacob, married four different women. He married two sisters and their respective servants, Billa and Zilpah. And Reuben slept with his Aunt Rachel's servant, Billa. And the question is, why would he do such a disgusting thing? Well, consider this very eye-opening background information from Bible scholar Warren Wearsby. He says, Reuben's sin involved much more than the satisfying of a lustful appetite. For a son to take a father's wife in this manner was a declaration that he was now head of the family. When Abner took King Saul's concubine, Saul's son and heir, Ishbosheth, protested because it meant Abner was usurping the crown. Rebellious Absalom, David's son, declared himself ruler by taking his father's concubines. It would appear then that Reuben's purpose was to take over the leadership of the family, end quote. You know, as weird as it sounds in our culture today, Reuben's behavior was not to satisfy some perverted sexual desire. Rather, it was his desire to become the new head of the home, right? Apparently, Reuben had enough of his father's negligence and his nonsense, and he thought he could do a better job. And he says, you know what, guys? I'm going to take care of this family from now on. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to lead the way. Now, when you understand this, then you know what's motivating Reuben, right, and how he sees himself in his role. Reuben doesn't simply see himself as the oldest son of the Jacob household. No, Reuben sees himself as the only savior of the Jacob household. Let me say that again. Reuben doesn't simply see himself as the oldest son of the Jacob household. He sees himself as the only savior of the Jacob household. This is how he chooses to interpret his experiences as the oldest brother. Why? Because he has a motivation gurgling deep down in his heart. And you know what that is? He is trying to prove to his family and most to himself that he is nothing like Jacob, dad, right? I am nothing like him. I'm going to do so much better than him as the new head of the household. Just watch. I'm going to fix all the problems that he has brought into the family, including the current problem of all, Joseph's favoritism. That's his mindset. Reuben chooses to see himself as the oldest brother, as the only savior of the family. And here's what's so sad. 
So many people today think of themselves the same way in relation to their own family, sometimes in the most turbulent situations. Why is it that battered wives will stay connected and stay married to their battering husbands? Even to the point of defending them against the authorities, even refusing to press charges. Why? Because I love my man. No one understands my man but me. I can change my man. I can love him in such a way that he'll stop beating me and the kids. I know it. I can change my man. I can save him. Why do so many adult children stay connected to toxic parents when they should leave them behind to the point where they can be free and their children can be set free from all that abuse? Because mom and dad need me. I'm the only one who understands them. I'm the only one they'll listen to. I'm the only one who can take care of their needs. I can change mom and dad. Why is it that so many elderly parents continue to enable that loser of adult son or daughter who has failed to launch and continues in their self-destructive ways? Because I love my baby. Nobody knows my baby but me. I know how to change my baby. No one's going to care for him the way I care for my baby. So often, so many take on the mindset of Reuben thinking that they can change their family for the better. They can fix the problems that mom and dad or some other influencing force upon their family has wreaked havoc upon. But here's the thing. If there's anything that Reuben is going to show us in just a moment, is that if you take on a savior complex for your family, you are headed for destruction. What kind? Well, let's consider what happened to Reuben by going to my next point. Reuben's failure as the oldest brother. Read again with me verses 21 and 24. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him, Joseph, out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hold on him. And he said this, that he might rescue Joseph out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So here Reuben is attempting to go into savior mode right now. He's trying to save Joseph from being murdered by his brothers, and he's trying to save his brothers from turning into a murderer of their own kind. And if you notice how Reuben is talking to his brothers, He's speaking with a tone of superiority as if he has some authority to bark out orders to his brothers. Read again what he says in verse 22. Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Reuben is attempting to command respect and bark orders to his brothers. And when you read verse 23, initially it may seem that they're going to obey. Because right then and there, they don't kill Joseph. But if you skip down to a couple verses, you come to find there's more to meet the eye. Because it turns out that was not what was really happening. Read again with me, starting in verse 25. Then they, the brothers, sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. Here we read the situation of Joseph being sold to a bunch of slave traffickers, Ishmaelites. And in that situation, Judah, another brother of Joseph, says something weird. What does he say? What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Why would Judah say such a thing if they already agreed, if they already decided to obey Reuben to not kill him in the first place? Right? This kind of reminds me of A Few Good Men, you know, when Tom Cruise gets Jack Nicholson. Why did you even need to give the order if the code red was told not to be done, right? Why is Judah even mentioning the death of Joseph if it was already decided, agreed upon, 
that they wouldn't touch him. The only possible answer is they had no intention of following Reuben's orders. They had no intention of recognizing authority, which is another way of saying they had no intention of recognizing his attempts to be the savior of the family. And this is verified by the difference of response that the brothers gave to Judah that they did not give to Reuben. Because what did they say in response to Judah after he gave his suggestion? And his brothers listened to him. You don't hear that when Reuben gave his orders, right? Why was Reuben's attempt to be the savior of his family rejected by his own brothers? Well, we get an indirect symbolic hint in verse 24. Listen to what it says. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. This is the pit that Reuben ordered his brothers to throw Joseph in. And we come to find this is no ordinary pit. It's actually a broken cistern. Yeah, do you guys know what a cistern is? It's a man-made hole that you put in the ground that's covered with plaster so it could collect water to drink, either water from the rain or seasonal overflows of nearby rivers and lakes. And here's the thing. In the Middle East, this was necessary for families to survive. Cisterns were literal saviors of families. Yeah. But here's the thing. If a cistern was cracked, if there was a hole in it, if it was broken, all that water it would collect would seep down into the ground beneath it, leaving behind just an empty pit. Now, here's what's interesting. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 2, God references a broken cistern to represent a person living in sin. Take a listen to what it says there. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, which is another way of saying the true cistern, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Notice this reference of a broken cistern representing a person living in sin. And how are they living in sin? By turning away from the one who is the true savior of families, living water, God, and trying to be their own savior, trying to be the savior of their own family. Sound familiar? See, the reason why Reuben's brothers not recognize him as the savior is because they saw him like a broken cistern, which is kind of ironic because Reuben saw the pit as a symbol of his saving power, his attempt to be the savior of his family. But for his brothers, they saw the pit as representing Reuben's sinful hypocrisy. His sinful hypocrisy. Do you guys remember what is motivating Reuben? He's trying to prove to his family and to himself, I'm nothing like our father. I am nothing like Jacob. But do you guys know what the primary character flaw of Jacob was in the Bible? He was a deceiver. He lied to people who loved him. Right? He lied to his family. He lied to his brother Esau so he could steal the birthright. He lied to his own father Isaac so he could get the blessings of the firstborn, robbing Esau yet again. He lied to his father-in-law, Rachel and, and Leah's father, so that he could steal essentially from him and make wealth for himself. Jacob was known first and foremost as a deceiver. How is Reuben going to try and save Joseph and his brothers? By lying to them scheming, right? How can you save your family by sinning against them? The answer is you can't. And here Reuben is beginning to understand why he cannot save. Because the underlying assumption to be an adequate savior of your family is not being met. He is not different than the one who has caused all the problems in the family. And folks, isn't this true for all of us? You know, so often if we come from broken homes or come from families that had very traumatic moments, we usually tend to blame somebody, probably most likely mom and dad, right? 
And when we do go through these traumatic moments, what do we tend to say to ourselves? It's kind of like an unspoken promise to ourselves. Don't we say something like, you know what? When I grow up or when mom and dad finally pass away and I'm now the head of the home or once I have my own family, I'm never going to be like them, right? I'm never going to do what they did to me. I'm never going to treat my kids the way they treated me. I'm never going to handle money the way they handled money. I'm never going to behave the way they behaved. And yet, when the opportunity arises, when you get to be in charge, you take over the family business, dad has passed away, you're now the head of the household, or you start a family of your own, any attempt for you to be different is all for naught because you come to find you're just like them, right? And all this grandiose talk is, I'm going to be different. I'm going to fix this family. I'm going to save this family from all the cursing and damage that dad caused or mom created. You come to find being a hypocrite. You're just like them. I once heard a story of a pastor tell the story of how when he was in high school, sophomore year, math class, he sat next to a girl who was the smartest kid. Always got the highest grades, broke the curve. They weren't friends or anything like that, but by sitting next to her, they were able to get to know one another, and she once shared with him that she came from a very broken home. Mom was twice divorced, living with her third boyfriend, and it was not a very healthy situation. Cops were always being called upon. Drugs were being used. Alcohol was being, you know, everywhere, right? And this girl once said to this pastor, or future pastor, I'm never going to be like my mom. I'm never going to be like her. I just can't stand her, and I just don't want to be anything like her. Fast forward, he's in grad school studying to be a pastor. He runs into this girl at the local mall, right? Pregnant with number three, holding a toddler and another infant in the hand, all by different fathers and still single. What happened? She fell into the same failure that Reuben is falling into in our passage. He, she thought, like Reuben, that she could be different and therefore be in a position to save the family curses that she had fallen upon. And so often, so many of us can be the same way ourselves. So often we think that we can make a difference, that we can save, that we have the power to be living cisterns for our families, when in reality, we're just like the person who we think is responsible for all the dysfunctions in our home, and we're just recycling it. And the question is, what do we do in this kind of predicament? What can Reuben do as the oldest brother? If he's not able to save his family, is there anyone else who can? Is there anyone else who can save us and our family issues? I believe there is. And that leads me to my final point, Reuben's cry for the best oldest brother. Excuse me. Read again with me verse 29 and 30. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Where shall I go? It was clear that while Joseph was, you know, <clears throat> uh, being sold, Reuben, for whatever reason, was not there. Turns out his brothers could probably see through Reuben's deceptive plans to deceive them, and so they returned the favor by deceiving him by selling Joseph, right? And when Reuben finally shows up to see what happened, he goes berserk, tears his clothes, and he cries out, where shall I go? You know, if I had to take an educated guess as to when the moment was when Reuben realized that he failed to be the savior of the family, I think it was this moment. Yeah, I think it was at this exact moment, which makes you wonder, what must have been going through his mind at that time? Well, it's pretty easy to figure out. Just listen to what he cries out. Where shall I go? How's he talking? What does he sound like? Doesn't he sound like an abandoned orphan, a hopeless orphan who has no one to turn to? 
right? No family that he can rely on, no, no other person that, who is his blood that he can say, help me, right? Reuben is in a situation where he realized that he failed to be the savior of his family. And now the only thing that he can do is cry out, where shall I go? He is the oldest brother after all. There is no other older sibling that he can look to. He certainly can't look to dad because he is the one who caused all the problems. Where shall I go? Where shall I go? It's kind of a weird question to ask. Part of the weirdness is because we don't know who he's actually asking that question to. Because on the surface, it looks like he's asking his brothers, where shall I go? But it seems highly unlikely that he's going to ask the very people who caused him to ask this problematic question in the first place. Who is he asking Where shall I go in a spirit of desperation and hopelessness? Well, the only other person left is God, right? Which makes a lot of sense because people who tend to be very desperate and in dire situations, even if they're not religious, tend to cry out to God more than any other moment. Talk to anyone who's facing a a looming illness of death or facing a a life-threatening surgery, and they'll tell you that is the case. So here we find Reuben possibly subconsciously asking God, what can you do for me? Where shall I go? And the question is, what is God's response to Reuben's question? I believe, I know it to be, the gospel. The gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that says the God of the Bible is made up of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, having, creating the only perfect family in existence. Yeah. And this perfect family who is experiencing perfect love graciously decided to share that perfect familial love to mankind by making man and woman in his image. But the gospel goes on to say that because of our selfishness, because of our sins, we have made our relationship to this perfect family dysfunctional. And this perfect family had every right to just leave us in our sins and suffer the full consequence of that sins that would have ended with us in a pit, the worst pit of all, the pit of hell. But God chose not to do that. Instead, The oldest brother of this family, the true oldest brother, God the Son, came into the world as Jesus Christ. Why? So he could do what people like Reuben could never do, to be the Savior and to bring us into the perfect family that we were destined to be part of. How did Jesus do this? Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 9, we read, What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position, a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. What is it saying here? It's saying Jesus is the complete opposite of Reuben. Because unlike Reuben, Jesus is not a hypocrite. He was a sinless person because he never followed the pattern of any earthly father like Jacob. No, he followed the example of his perfect father in heaven, God the Father. And unlike Reuben, who threw his brother into a pit so he could save his family... Jesus threw himself into the pit so he could save his family through his death on the cross. That's what him tasting death for us means, you see? And anyone who trusts in Jesus' sacrificial substitutionary work on the cross for them not only have their sins forgiven, but they're now permanently placed in the perfect family. 
And not only that, we're given the power to stay in this perfect family by the power that rose him from the dead, the power of the Spirit. This is the gospel. And if we believe this message, you know what happens? Your earthly family will change for the better. You know why? Because when you become a Christian, you get exposed to healing love from this perfect family. That the more you get engaged and involved in this healing love, you can now share and bring into your imperfect earthly family. And the more you commune, the more you fellowship, the more you grow in obedience to this perfect family, the more healing love you receive, the more you can give to your earthly family to where little by little, it becomes more like the perfect heavenly family. You see? Do you see? It is only through the gospel that all families, any family, every family can be restored and renewed the way God intended it to be. Because it is through the work of Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and his ministry to us by the power of his spirit that our families get healed because we have been connected to the healing perfect family. That is what the gospel teaches. Here's my question. Do you believe this gospel? Do you relish it? You know, at this time, this is when I would usually end my message, but because I know most likely this message will hit home probably closer than other messages, I want to give you some practical follow-up steps to make this message more applicable to your life. First of all, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, okay, welcome, right? And your family life is not doing well, marriage is not healthy, your relationship to your kids is off, Mom and dad have always been a problem throughout your life. I implore you, get access to the healing power of having God in your life by turning away from your sins and making Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life. Come talk to me afterwards, and I would love to help you take your next steps in that journey of faith. But to my brothers and sisters, this might be a difficult message for you because I know you're probably thinking of one or two or a lot of people in your family right now that this message has triggered in your heart. This is what I'm asking you to do. First, read scripture. Most importantly, read 1 Corinthians 13. I think that is the best chapter to go to if you want to be able to heal in terms of loving people. That is the chapter that deals with how to love the way God intended us. Love is patient. Love is kind. It keeps no record of wrongs. You remember? Meditate, memorize, and pray. Pray for that word to seep into your heart and pray for that person who is your equivalent to Jacob was to Reuben. Pray for that person and pray for yourself. Specifically pray that God will help you see that you are no different than that person, whoever is your equivalent of Jacob. And humble yourselves with repentance, but also ask God to give you grace to love that person. Also, educate yourself with some rich resources that can help you understand more about how to live a life of peacemaking in the home. One book that I really think is is Peacemaking for Families by Ken Sandy. Great book. It's not too thick. I know you guys get annoyed. I always recommend thick books. But this is not too thick. I think it's only like 200 pages. You're like, what? Yeah, it's not that long. And the font's pretty big. But it is a healing book. It has been for me in my relationships with my family. This is the time where I really hope and pray that you guys will really ask God to make the gospel really powerfully relevant in your life because it's more than just saving you from the pits of hell. It's more than just the forgiveness of sin so you can have eternal life. It's also the power for here and now to bring restoration and renewal to the people that I know you want to have 
the most with. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that you will be with all of us. For who of us cannot testify that we have all had problems and troubles and sufferings in the home? Father, I know for many of us we've had issues with parents, with children, with siblings. Father, with spouses, God, we just ask now that you would help us to truly access the healing power of the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, it is only through him, the true oldest brother, that we can have salvation for our families. It is only through Jesus who can do what people like Reuben could never do. Jesus, you are the only true best older brother. You're the only one who can save the family. And so, Jesus, please do that work now by coming into our lives and being our Lord. And let us faithfully follow you and obey you and trust you, knowing that you are so good, evident by your willingness to give your all for our sake and for the glory of your church. God, would you hear us now? For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offerings.